Could we pray together this morning? Father, this is your word. And this is your church. And Father, we make this simple prayer this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our one true teacher today. Lord, give us insight and understanding, but even more than that, God, would you put within us that holy desire to walk in accordance with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 20 this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, we'll walk through this passage of Scripture together today. Entitled today's message, A Thousand Years and Then Forevermore. Revelation 20 is probably uh, one of, if not the most, debated passages in all of the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us during this study, that's saying a lot because there are a lot of things in Revelation uh, that scholarly people with many degrees like to talk about and discuss and have arguments over and debates and all that sort of a thing. Revelation 20, I think, I think, comes near the top of the list, if not the very top of those Areas. Now, debates over this passage of Scripture, they generally occur around the question of when does Revelation 20 take place? And, and the plan and purpose of God that he's laying out before us in this book of Revelation, things that are yet to come in this world, what is the order of events going to be? When is this place, this time, known as the thousand years or often referred to as the millennium, you'll hear that term, that's the Latin word, which literally means thousand years, that's a Latin term. When does the millennium, when does this thousand years take place? So the big debate is when, but as we look at the scripture this morning, I think there's a greater question that's being asked. The question is not so much when does the millennium, when does the thousand years, or when will the thousand years take place, but the real question is not when, but why. Why Revelation 20? Why the thousand years? Why the millennium? What is the purpose of these things. And if you look with me for a moment, let's read these first three verses again. We're going to read a lot of this scripture again today because I want you to kind of soak in a little bit more of it as we walk through it together. In verse 1, the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this vision that God was giving him of things yet to come, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. We've seen that the bottomless pit also translated the abyss in some of your translations possibly the abyss has been here before it's kind of a holding place uh, for evil essentially as we'll talk about when we finish key to the bottomless pit a great chain verse 2 and he sees the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years there's the first of six references to this thousand year period and threw him into the pit verse 3 and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until here's the second one the thousand years were ended 
And then here's the part that was interesting to me. When I first read this passage, beginning to study for this morning, this phrase just struck me. Look at what it says at the end of verse 3. And after that, he must be released for a little while. After that, he must be released for a little while. And I'm going to tell you, my first response to that verse when I read it as I was going to study this passage, my first response was, why? For what reason? We finally see the devil bound and incarcerated, the, the deceiver of God's people, the accuser of God's people, the one who has forever been pulling the finger at God's people and saying, guilty, 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 even as he is the same one who has been leading God's people astray into sin, idolatry, immorality, all the things that he could lead us into away from God and his presence and a right relationship with him. We finally see him here bound and incarcerated, and then it says, but he must be released for a little while. And I'm going, why? What sense does that make? The great enemy of mankind is defeated, and yet he gets to have a heyday? He gets to have some shore leave? I don't really understand here. What, why in the world would he be released? And the answer to that question is the key, I believe, to Revelation 20. Now I'm going to give you about 30 seconds this morning of some of the debate over this chapter. We're not going to spend a long time here, but I want you to at least understand it because you may hear some of these terms uh, come out in some of your reading or later in life you may hear some of these terms. So they all refer to what's known as the millennium. Again, that's the Latin word for a thousand years. And those who read this passage of Scripture, when they debate over this Scripture, the question of when, they take for themselves usually one of three uh, classifications in terms of belief about the millennium. You'll hear people refer to those who are premillennialists, those who are postmillennialists, and those who are amillennialists. Now, there are as many flavors and varieties of those three as we can have time to get into for the next 12 hours. But those are the three main categories of belief about this passage. And those terms refer to the position in time of the millennium to the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every one of those pre, post, and amillennialists all believe that Jesus is coming again. But the question that seems to come up is, well, how does this thousand years here relate to when Jesus is going to come again? Because the a key tenet of the Christian faith, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you must believe. If you've been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you must believe that Jesus is coming again. If you don't believe that, then what good is your faith? If it's just for good moral living, then you can get that and not have to get up early on Sunday morning to come to church. There's more to it than that. There's the, this constant belief that the Revelation's been pointing us to that Christ is coming again. So how does Revelation 20 come in conjunction with that truth? For those who consider themselves premillennialists, their understanding is that the coming of Christ will occur before pre-millennium. That's where the idea comes from. So the coming of Christ, his return is going to occur pre-millennium, before the millennium. 
For those who consider themselves to be post-millennialists, they understand the coming of Christ will occur after the millennium. So post-millennium, after the millennium. And for those who consider themselves to be all-millennialists, that literally means no millennium, but it's kind of a misnomer because really what their understanding of the millennium is is that this Revelation 20, this talk of the thousand years and the millennium is really just symbolic of the church age. These are those who would take the majority of Revelation as a symbolic word rather than a literal word as we've talked about in weeks past. And so they see this as symbolic of the church age, of the time in which we're living now, that this is the time in which Satan is bound and Christ is reigning. Uh, there was a, a famous theologian that said, according to that uh, belief, he said, well, if, if Satan is bound these days, it must be with a really long chain. So you can take that for what it amounts to, but, uh, and I'm not going to get into those, those thoughts any more than we just did. Uh, but you may hear those terms and wonder, what does that mean? That's kind of the basic understanding. How does the millennium relate to the return of Christ? But again, John in this book is not primarily concerned with chronology. Now, that's where a lot of the books about this book go. You begin to read commentaries, and you begin to read folks that write about the book of Revelation and their understanding of it, and most of what they're talking about is when. How are these things going to line up? And they get all these charts and graphs and maps and things and say, well, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And the next guy will say, no, those two things are going to be in reverse order. And they got all these different ideas and understandings, and they often miss the point that John's purpose was not to give us a timeline. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was not to show us when, but to reveal to us why. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. So what do these thousand years reveal to us? That's the first part of your outline there. There's three things that I want you to see. And if you were to go back to the related passage in the book of Ezekiel, you might just jot this down. It's very interesting. Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. Those three chapters in the Old Testament refer to the same place. Uh, in, in verse 7 here, it refers to uh, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog was uh, a pagan king, and Magog was his kingdom, a, a, a group of folks that came against God's people Israel in the Old Testament days. And he makes a reference here to Gog and Magog as a way of drawing us back to the book of Ezekiel, where we see in those chapters the purpose and plan of God displayed in some very unique ways. You might just take some time this week to read through that and see the correlations between Ezekiel 37 through 39 and Revelation 20. But the things that come out of the Ezekiel 37 through 39 line up perfectly with what we see here. First of all, it speaks of a final vindication of God's holiness. Throughout Ezekiel 37 through 39, you see this constant reminder that God is holy. And as we've seen in this book, that's the constant reminder here. Three times we see this idea of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The most important attribute of God, if you know nothing else about God, you need to know this. He is holy. And some would say, well, well I thought God was love. He is, but his love is holy. Some would say, well, I thought that God was merciful. He is, but his mercy is holy. I thought God was almighty, but yes, in his 
almightiness. He is perfectly holy. If you leave today and know nothing else about the one true and living God, you need to know that he is holy. That means he is perfect in all of his attributes. That means that he is set apart from mankind in a very unique and special way. And here we see a vindication of the holiness of God because there are many who would call into question God's holiness. They would say, well, well, how can God really be holy? How can he really be good and send people to hell? That's the greatest question people ask about the scriptures in our day. How can a good and loving God send people to hell? Which we're getting ready to see by the end of this passage. There's a reality that needs to be confronted. And on the flip side of that question, there would be some who, with a right understanding of the gospel, would would question, well, how can a holy God allow any sinner into heaven? Because a right understanding of sin, you look at that and you see the holiness of God in contrast with the sinfulness of man, and you question, well, how could a holy God allow any of us into his perfect, sinless heaven? So on either side, there's a really a questioning of the holiness of God, of the goodness of God, of the righteousness of God. And we see in this chapter and in Ezekiel 37 through 39, a vindication of God's holiness. Him saying, let me prove my holiness to you. How does he do that? Well, first of all, the second point on there, letter B, he does it through a full demonstration of Christ's reign. Look there in verses 4 through 6, and you'll see it. He says, And I saw thrones. Seated on those thrones were those to whom authority was given to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And what happened? They came to life. And they reigned with Christ, and here it is again, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, which, by the way, implies there's a second resurrection, which will come here in a minute. Verse 6, And blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so one way that God vindicates his holiness, that he proves his holiness to all of creation, is through a full demonstration of the reign of his son, Jesus Christ, in the world. Now whether you take this passage to be literal or symbolic, the reality is this, that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, is going to rule and reign over all of creation. And it will not just be from heaven, it will be in the fullness of his glory. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, that he is sovereign, and that he is deserving of the full devotion of all people. And that day is coming, and I believe it's pictured here. But we see at the same time, there's this reality that comes in in verses 7 through 10. There's also a feigned submission to Christ's lordship. There is a place demonstrated here in these verses where people make the right confession 
but they show no true submission to the Lord. Let's read about it, verse 7. And then the thousand years, when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. That's what he's been doing since the beginning. The nations that are at the four corners of the earth, and he makes this reference to Gog and Magog, this Old Testament group that rose up against the people of Israel. What's he going to do? He's going to gather them for battle, verse, seven, verse 8 says. And their number is like the sand of the sea, and their multitude rising up against the one true and living God. And they marched up over the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's of God's people, and the beloved city, that's the city of Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if that doesn't send chills up your spine, it ought to because you weren't listening. There's a stark reality here between those who would simply pay lip service to the Lordship of Christ and those who would live in submission to the Lordship of Christ. To those who would claim the name of Jesus because of some past religious experience and between those who would live in right relationship to Jesus because they've been redeemed by his blood. Let me put it really clearly here. This passage is demonstrating this for us. The true depravity of the sinner's heart is revealed and that after a thousand years of Christ's righteous rule they still choose to rebel against his lordship let that sink in for a moment I know that we often have problems with with our earthly governments for various reasons and and we kind of have a rebellious spirit spirit sometimes even though Romans 13 says that we should live in submission to the authorities because every authority has been instituted by God What this is saying is that after a thousand years, longer than any of us can really comprehend, after a thousand years of Christ's perfect and righteous and holy and good and loving reign upon the earth, that there will still be those who will rise up against him when given the opportunity. That is the nature of sinful depravity. That's how deep sin goes in the heart of mankind. We minimize our sin because we think, well, it's just a little word. We're, we're basically good people, right, with just a, just a few flaws. That's really what it means to be a sinner, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're not just good people with a few flaws. The Bible says that none are righteous, not even one. Jesus himself said that none are good except God alone. In that moment, he was claiming his own godliness, that he was God in the flesh who dwelt among us full of grace and truth. It's time for us, church, to step away from this place where we act as though we are good people with just a few flaws and recognize that apart from the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ, we are rebels who are deserving of God's eternal punishment. What did it say? Forever and ever, day and night. 
Until you understand what it means to be a sinner, you will not see your need for a Savior. Because if you're just basically a good person with a few flaws, then you just need some good self-help books. You just need to try harder. You just need to go to some seminars. You just need to, to work more on the areas where you're having trouble, and eventually you'll get there, right? Clean up your own mess, right? But your mess is far too great. The mess you're in is far too deep. And the more you work, it's like quicksand. The more you work to make yourself righteous, the deeper you are drowning in your own sin. You need the rescuing hand of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, notice that word, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says this, one of the scariest statements in Scripture. Jesus said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But Lord, didn't we, didn't we have some amazing revivals? Didn't we proclaim your name faithfully? Didn't we attend church regularly? Didn't we memorize your scriptures? Didn't we talk to others about you? Didn't we do all of these religious things? And you'll say, yeah, but I never knew you. And in that moment, there will be a stark reality between those who knew much about Jesus and those who knew Jesus. It's huge. Don't miss it. You can come to this church every week. You can read your Bible every day. You can talk with him about him to others every opportunity that you're given. You can walk in all of the religious rituals that you want to walk in. And at the end, when you stand before him, the word will not be, good job, you did a good thing there. It'll be the part for me, I never knew you. Because religion will profit you nothing. It's the relationship with Christ that's necessary. Do you know him? At the end of the day, that's the only question that's going to matter, as we'll see. Let's make our way through the second portion of these scriptures today. He speaks here of the lake of fire. This is the eternal hell. He's spoken of a place called the abyss and a place called Hades, and these seem to be kind of a holdover place uh, for evil prior to that eternal hell. We've seen this abyss and Hades mentioned several times throughout this book, but it was never mentioned in a way that that was a permanent type place. That's a holdover place for those who are facing an eternity in hell. That's the stopover for everlasting torment. And so verse 11, we'll pick up there. 
He, John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death. And Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire, this eternal hell, reminds us of three important things. First of all, it's an eternal witness to God's righteousness. The eternality of hell is an eternal witness to the righteousness of God. There would be some who would look at hell and say, well, isn't God kind of going overboard there? I mean, come on, everlasting, forever without end punishment, isn't that a little extreme for my sin? See, the only reason that we say things like that or think things like that, even if we wouldn't say them, is because we have not only minimized our sin, but we have minimized His righteousness. But when you understand that He is perfectly holy and that even one sin is an infinite offense against him you look at genesis chapter three and there have been some that said come on they ate a piece of fruit and that brought death and destruction into the world i mean really couldn't worse things have been done it wasn't like they killed anybody well wait a generation it happens people look at that and they go isn't god kind of overreacting here Eating a little piece of fruit, is that really such a big deal? But it's a reminder to us that when you are standing before an infinitely holy God, perfect in all of his attributes, no matter how small the sin may seem, and we tend to compare our sins to others rather than comparing them to the perfection of his son Jesus Christ, when we compare our sins to others, we see, well, I'm better than that guy. Well, I've never done this or that or the other. And we a lot of times like to look over, gloss over the things that we have done that are an offense to a holy God who who is looking at us as rebels. That every sin means that I am shaking my fist in the face of God and saying, I don't want you. I don't want your ways. I don't want your holiness. I don't want your righteousness. Essentially, every sin is like, like us looking at God and saying, I hate you. And that may sound extreme to you. But I think it's the picture of the scriptures. If we would be honest, if we look into these scriptures and see ourselves, we'll see that apart from Christ, we are rebels deserving of eternal punishment. The reality is that everyone that has ever lived is going to stand before God's throne of judgment but there happens to be two thrones of judgment. If you look in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, I just jot that down. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, For we must all appear, Apostle Paul is writing to Christians at this point, those who have trusted in Christ, and he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So even Christians, those of you that have trusted in Christ, there's a place where you're going to stand before God and answer for what you have done. What you've done with what? What you've done with Jesus. Have you proclaimed him? Have you lived for him? Have you, or have you simply sat back in the spiritual lazy boy and the nominal Christianity that this culture so much loves and puts forward as, as the ultimate when in reality it's, it's really nothingness? Have you done that or have you lived full out for the glory of God in your life? And the judgment that day will be a matter of reward. But the judgment here in Revelation 20, it's not a matter of reward, it's a matter of punishment. And how will they be judged? Well, first of all, we need to be reminded that this lake of fire is an everlasting word of man's responsibility. And folks, in a culture where the common thing is to shirk responsibility, we see dads all over the landscape of our culture shirking their responsibility to their children. And we see children shirking their responsibility and blaming their parents. We see everywhere around us this blame game. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. But I can guarantee you there is coming a day when you will have to take responsibility. Look at what it says there. It says they will be judged according to what is written in the books. According to what? According to what their parents did, right? Whether they raised them the right way, whether they spanked them or not. They'll be judged according to what their companions did, right? We all know that bad company corrupts good character. That's in the scriptures too, right? So one day we'll be able to point the finger at our peer group and say it was, it was their fault. Judged according to what they intended to do, right? You know what that old saying says about the pathway to hell is paved with something? Good intentions. There's a lot of truth to that statement. Hear me, folks. If you live your life apart from Jesus Christ, if you resist the offer of God's grace in the blood of his son, if you think that you will be good enough or that at the end of the day, God will put you on the scale with everybody else and say, well, you're better than most, so come on in. If that's your understanding, understand when, the, when these books are opened, every deed, every thought, every action and reaction will be displayed for all to see. And in comparison with a holy God and his holy son, Jesus Christ, you will have, not have one leg to stand on. There will be no excuse on that day. There will be no fingers to point on that day except for at yourself to own everything that you've said, done, and thought. And if that doesn't scare you right now, you're not being honest with yourself. How many of you would like to have all your thoughts from the last week displayed up on this big screen? We'll just scroll them through there with your name attached. Not a one of us, right? I'm not signing up for it. I can guarantee you I'm not. We don't want that. But it's coming. It's coming for those who will not receive Christ, who think that they'll be good enough to measure up. If 
finally this morning, it's not just a reminder of God's righteousness and man's responsibility, but it's also an enduring warning of sin's rancidness. And I use that word rancidness not just because it's a cool word, but because I think it pictures what sin really is. Let me give you an illustration. There's a guy named David Nasser who talks about having taken a mission trip to the country of India, and for several days there, they were working in an AIDS clinic. Those who are dying from AIDS. And he said that outside of that clinic, there were two piles of garbage. One was the normal garbage, and one was the garbage that was associated with the AIDS patients. And they kept them separate because they wanted to make sure that folks knew, this is garbage you don't want to mess around in. This is diseased. You could come down with, with AIDS if you were messing around in this. So they were very careful. And one particular day, David said, he was given the task of taking some bags of that AIDS-infested garbage out to that particular pile. And it had a fence all the way around it. And he went out and he opened that gate. And as soon as he opened that gate, there were a number of three or four little kids that ran out of that gate and ran down the street. And when he opened the gate, he was appalled by what he saw. Because those bags of stinking, disease-ridden garbage had been ripped wide open by those little children who were looking for a bite to eat. David says immediately he was just stricken. How in the world? Why would anybody? I mean, at least go to the other trash pile that's not full of the disease-ridden stuff. At least don't, don't go here, wherever you're going to go. Just go somewhere. Get food. Surely they can find food somewhere better than, than, a, than a pile of disease-infested garbage. And then he had one of those God-sized moments and realized... That's exactly what sin looks like. That rather than going to the feast of a gracious and loving God, sinners would rather feast on disease-ridden garbage. And I know some of you in the room think I'm overstating it. But if I'm overstating the reality of sin and our sin condition, then why does sin merit an eternal punishment in hell day and night forever and ever? Jesus said it's a place where the worm dies not. It's a continual infestation of disease-ridden filth and shame and punishment forever and ever and ever. And why? Why do we feast upon that garbage when we have before us every day the opportunity to feast with a holy and righteous God who invites us to share in His presence? 
Why is it that we would, we would rather spend time gazing at idolatrous images on our computer screen, even adulterous images on our computer screen, than to gaze into the clear and lovely word of our God who wants to show us greater things? He's calling you out of the trash pile into a feast. He's calling you away from disease-ridden garbage that will destroy your life, and he is calling you to a life like you've never known. Apart from Christ, you are no different than those poor Indian street children who could find no better place to find a bite to eat. And the King of kings and Lord of lords has invited you to feast with him, to dwell with him, to live with him forever. And in the depravity of our sin, many will reject the offer. Jesus spoke about what it will mean to reject that offer in Matthew 25. Speaking of what he himself will do, Jesus said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I think that speaks to the fact that hell was created for the devil and his demons. It is by no means the desire of God that you would spend eternity separated from Him in a place of eternal punishment. But if you'll persist in your rebellion, He'll let you go your way. And these, He says, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The reality of the scriptures with which you must contend is this. You will either find yourself in the book of life or in the lake of fire. And you go, yeah, I've heard this for years. It's heaven or hell, black or white, yada, yada, yada. Take it seriously. This is the word of Almighty God who created all things, who loves you with an everlasting love, who wants you to dwell with him forever. He is urging you out of the disease-ridden trash pile of this earth to come and to feast with him forever and ever, which begins now, not just in the sky by and by, but a relationship with Christ that will change your life forever, beginning today. And you can choose whether or not you are going to dwell with him or whether you're going to stay in the garbage dump. So which will it be? Again, the question is not how many good works have you done? How will you measure up on the scales with other people? Yada, yada, yada. None of those things are going to matter at the end. The end is going to be determined based upon one question. 
what did you do with Jesus? And again, it's not just going to be knowing about Jesus. You can read this Bible cover to cover every year and still burn forever in hell. You can attend this church every Sunday. This is one of the scariest realities for me as a pastor, realizing that there are going to be some in this church who professed Jesus with their lips, but their hearts were never changed. They knew lots about him, probably more than I know about him, but they never knew him. And there will come a day when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will say, get out of here. I never knew you. And so the question of the day is this, do you know him? Have you turned from your sin, that stinking, disease-ridden garbage dump, and trusted in Christ? For real, no church games. No putting on the nice, good person face. I'm talking, have you come face to face with the fact that you are a rebel against Almighty God, deserving of eternal punishment in hell? And that he freely offered you everlasting life in Christ. Have you taken him at his word? Trusting in Christ, turning from sin. Just take a quiet moment. If you just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment, nothing weird's going to happen. Our worship team is going to come, prepare to lead us in a final song today we call this a song of invitation commitment whatever in the quietness of this moment I want to ask you to wrestle with the realities we've talked about today The Bible has portrayed this reality for us that there is a holy God who is worthy, deserving of your utter and complete devotion and submission to Him. At the same time, He's allowed you to go your way. He has allowed you to rise up in rebellion against him in your sin. He has not overridden your will even though he could if he wanted to. And this holy, loving, and righteous God has made a way for you to be rescued. Rescued from what, you might ask? Rescued from sin, rescued from the death that comes with it, ultimately rescued from your own self. His word says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin, the due result of sin in our lives is death, eternal separation from Him. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord.
So here's the question for you today. Is Jesus your Savior? I'm not asking you, is, is, do you believe He is a Savior? I'm not asking you, even if you believe He is the Savior, I'm asking you, is He your Savior? And the question tied to it is this. If He is your Savior, then is He your Lord? Because He must be. You don't get it one way without the other. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved, saved from sin and death and an eternity separated from God. The dividing line will not be your righteousness or lack thereof. It will be His righteousness. Do you know Jesus? stand and we're going to sing this song together in just a moment but I want to pray for us and I want to ask you to respond to the word of God as the spirit of God leads you Father help us to be not just hearers of your word but to become doers of it if we are feasting at the garbage dump of this sin soaked world God would you draw us away lead us to repent and to turn away from the filth and to turn to our Father to trust in Christ to put all that we are in your hands. To surrender to you as Savior and as Lord so that when we speak those words, Lord, Lord, it will be far more than a religious expression. It will be a relational reality. So Lord, lead us to respond this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You respond as the